This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It is week 24, working from home. And Jason, once again, a lot of old struggles brought to light again. Of course, the virus, we saw some progress. We saw, obviously, continued stresses. Racism, once again, front and center, following the shooting of another black man, Jacob Blake, by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that was followed by protests who were confronted and shot at by an armed counter-protester. It was a difficult week. It was a difficult week, and it came amidst the Republican National Convention following the Democratic National Convention last week. It also came at a time when sports once again came to the fore, not as entertainment, but as a realm in which athletes are standing up increasingly for social justice. We saw sports come to a halt earlier this week, Carol, at least momentarily, as athletes and the rest of us wrestle with what goes on from here. Yeah, no doubt about it, Jason. Sports struggling with racism and what's going on with society. So too are two other industries. We're talking about Silicon Valley and film. We're going to hear from two voices where blacks and minorities are finding it hard to have a presence there. We're also going to hear from Louis Vuitton's Virgil Abloh about the importance to give opportunities to young black designers and his mission to eradicate systemic racism. We begin this hour, though, with a story inside the magazine on other news this week, and that was Jay Powell, who was at the Fed's annual Jackson Hole Symposium. He unveiled a new approach to setting U.S. monetary policy. You can get full analysis of that at Bloomberg.com and, of course, on the Bloomberg. But meantime, Mike Regan, he's senior editor at Bloomberg Markets Live blog. He writes a love letter to Fed Chief Jay Powell from its loving stock market. And we talked with Mike along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. And yes, it's satire. You know, I just thought it was a clever idea. I mean, how much can you write sort of the same old uh, story about a new record high and, and, you know, credit it with at least uh, in large part the the low rates from the Fed and and what they've done to sort of shore up the corporate bond market. So I thought Joel had a really clever idea to kind of approach it from a different angle. So, of course, I was I was on board and. I was trying to figure out, you know, what what sort of voice would the stock market have if if it, you know, were personified, and um, I just assumed it'd be a real smart aleck, you know, a real a real wise guy. So that that's that's kind of the tone <laughs> the tone I went with. Well, but you also unveil some really thoughtful <laughs> questions that I think some market watchers, Mike, are kind of wondering about at this point, right? When it comes to future Fed policy, right? And you know, I, obviously, that's the question I think on everyone's mind is, what more can the Fed do? I mean, obviously, uh, they've really uh, inoculated the corporate bond market. I think that's the most important thing: is that in an economic downturn like this, the, the what really freaks out the stock market more than anything is if that credit market starts to wobble. So the, the Fed, by buying corporate bonds and even corporate bond ETFs, I think, sort of took a, a, away a lot of uh, the sort of background risk that stock investors would have worried about. Um, but, you know, the question is, well, once the Fed starts doing anything, I think people get greedy and, and expect more and more uh, types of, of unconventional policies to to keep the party going, um, and especially because, you know, the, the stock market's roaring, but that the economy is still a big question mark. I mean, the numbers aren't as bad as they were in, say, March and April uh, and, and May, but that we're certainly not back to where we were. Uh, and, you know, what more could the Fed possibly do? A lot of people 
are sort of wishful thinking and hoping that it'll they'll, uh, hint at some sort of yield curve control down the road where they'll keep those longer and, you know, 10 to 30 year yields in check, um, which would influence obviously mortgage rates and that sort of thing. But I don't know. I don't know what more you can expect from the Fed. They've kind of pushed back on that sense of yield curve uh, control, that, that it's really imminent. Uh, a lot of the speakers from the Fed have, have just said they're not sure it really does as much uh, right. good as people are hoping it would. What are the odds that, you know, if the, if, if the Fed really needed to do more at some point, if things really did, if, say there's a second uh, a wave of sorts, and, you know, that is the fear as we head into in the, the colder months here that, you know, that maybe there's a, a second wave that sort of get mix, get, gets a little mixed up around with the, with the flu like a, and the common cold. You know, like we're looking at some stuff that might get crazy again. And like what, what kind of ammo would, would the Fed potentially have if that, if that scenario ever happened? You know, I, you know, I would guess that, that Jay Powell or anyone at the Fed's first reaction to that would be you really got to get the fiscal policy straightened out because that's really where you can get focus the help to individuals, uh, unemployed people and, and struggling business owners that need it a lot more. So I think that would be their first pushback and say, look, uh, we can't solve anything. The, the Congress has to get sort of uh, together and pass something to, to get that fiscal support. Um, after that, I mean, I, it's a good question. I'm sure they'll consider buying more assets, buying more treasuries, more corporate bonds to keep those liquidity and those markets functioning. But um, I think ultimately their pushback would be, look, it's time for the fiscal side to take over uh, and, and really, you know, bolster that safety net for everyone. If, if what you're talking about uh, turns out to be the case, which I think there's a pretty good chance it could be. And that's Mike Regan from Bloomberg Markets and, of course, Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. You know, this was in some ways a lighthearted look, but also something pretty serious underneath this, which is this disconnect that we're seeing. And it reminded me a bit, Carol, of mm. another conversation we had this week. You'll have to check it out on our podcast feed to hear it about the K-shaped recovery. Yes. And it is something that we're spending a lot of time on because it is a way, it's a lens in many ways to look at what's going on in the world when it comes to stock market success, but also this backdrop of vast, vast inequality. Yeah, a reminder, some are coming back after the economic downturn, some are not. All right, coming up, our regular check-in with the team at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health about COVID-19 and the headlines this week that you need to know. That's coming up next on Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, Carol, underneath everything that's going on, a society that is wrestling with its past and what it ultimately wants to be, amid all of that, we are still in the midst of a global health crisis tied to the spread of COVID-19. We dug into that this week with one of our experts from Johns Hopkins. That's right, Jason. And it was a week where we saw global virus cases top 24 million. We caught up with Dr. Tangela Purnell, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, about the latest headlines on the virus and also about the concept of health disparities that have really been brought to light as a result of COVID-19. I first like, would like to thank both of you for having me here. It is indeed an honor to be able to talk about 
you know, some of our work. And so, as you correctly alluded to, this is a problem worldwide, but in particular, this is a problem for the exact same uh, disadvantaged populations that are typically the same population that you see experiencing health um, disparities and health inequities from a variety of different causes. So, um, you know, we at the Johns Hopkins Urban Health Institute and also at the Center for Health Equity, we um, have a series of different um, approaches to try and tackle this problem. So obviously, we do research that involves uh, vulnerable populations. We do this work in conjunction with our community and the patient stakeholder partners who actually have a voice at the table and helping to really help us design, implement, and also disseminate our findings. Um, another approach is really our education and training. Unfortunately, we know that all of these problems and these disparities are truly just rooted in generational inequities, and it won't be all fixed. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear that it will all be fixed in one generation. And so another thing that we really focus on is really training the next generation of health equity researchers or uh, public health practitioners so that we can make sure that this work continues so that the right. gains that we achieve you know, we'll also be able to keep those gains. Dr. Purnell, I think we wonder too, like it's interesting, one of the stories we're focusing on, Jason and I were just talking about it, that, you know, Abbott coming out and saying they've got, you know, a 15-minute test uh, for the virus and getting ready to ramp it up, right? And we've talked about how we need to have systems in place that help us get control of the virus for everyone. And I do wonder, we've had lots of conversations, certainly, um, because of this pandemic, about the inequalities uh, in terms of access to health care and good health care among vi- different communities. So what things, as you say, you talk with people in these communities, uh, they've got a place at the table, what needs to be done? And I do wonder, are there things coming out of this crisis, whether it's telemedicine or other things, that will make a difference? Absolutely. So I think that, you know, there, this answer is twofold. So first of all, in terms of access to testing, you're absolutely right, you know, and saying that we know that there's not equal access. And in particular, even as we get these advances in technology, for example, rapid testing, we also know that um, the dissemination of this is not equal among different communities, in particular the communities that were already disadvantaged. So I think that one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that as we are trying novel approaches to really get this virus under control, we have to think about, well, what are the structural barriers to people who are living, for example, in neighborhoods that don't have easy access to testing? Uh, We need to think about things like not necessarily requiring cars. Think about at the beginning of this, many people had to have a car to drive up to get tested. We need to think about things like um, are people able to get tested as they are asymptomatic? Are people able to get tested without a physician prescription? So all of these things could really be a barrier to people who are already disadvantaged by this system. And then, you know, in terms of thinking about longer term, what we need to do within these communities, I think we really need to take a look at this and realize that COVID-19 is not some magical unicorn that just came out of nowhere and then all of a sudden, Um, disproportionately impacted certain groups of people. What it did was really open our eyes to the fact, you know, uh, more mainstream, that there are pockets of society who have not been properly taken care of by society. And we need to be committed to the long-term work 
of addressing these structural barriers so that the next virus or the next whatever right. won't continue right. to be the thing that keeps happening. You know, enough is enough with this. That's Tangela Purnell from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And, of course, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. They are really our go-to voice to really understand all of the headlines that are coming out on a daily basis, Jason, and give us some perspective on where we are in this fight against COVID-19. Well, and it was an interesting week, too, because we started by talking about convalescent plasma. Mm-hmm. We ended up, you know, maybe taking a slightly different view of the world, especially as we think about getting back to school, talking about testing, but also underneath it all, as you pointed out, inequality, it has come to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she talks so much about health disparities and she says, you know, Americans are just starting to learn about this, um, but it has definitely been a conversation that we have talked about a lot, these inequalities when it comes to health care. And speaking of inequalities, we are seeing that a lot, big time in Silicon Valley. Coming up, Bloomberg News Enterprise Technology reporter Nico Grant, he digs deep into the racism in Silicon Valley. It's unbelievable stories. Right. Sydney Sykes is a young woman who came out of Harvard, um, had so much potential in her career in venture capital after working at a consulting firm. And she worked at New Enterprise Associates, NEA, which is pretty prominent uh, in Silicon Valley. And when she introduced talented black entrepreneurs to uh, some of her white colleagues, she said she'd feel the chemistry in the room sour. Um, the white entrepreneurs, uh, the white uh, investors, pardon me, always said the same thing afterward that they just couldn't get excited about the idea or the person. She said the same thing happened when there was a referral for a black candidate for a job in VC. Um, and she had to leave the industry. More from Bloomberg's Nico Grant. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Jason, this next half hour, we're going to look at two industries where blacks and minorities are finding it difficult to have a presence. And first up, this is a story that's on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com that caught our attention, and it really should. That's right. Nico Grant, he's one of our top reporters out on the West Coast, has written some terrific stuff Mm -hmm. about Silicon Valley, some of the big players there. This week, he tackles Silicon Valley's quiet racism. We caught up with Nico, and here's what he had to say. When the national conversation about race and inequality got underway earlier this year, I realized, speaking with um, you know, people who work in tech and, and work in venture capital, that there was this strain um, of you know, guilt and reflection that was happening among some of the people who had been most successful in in this system as black individuals. And so specifically, the story delves into um, how people are coming to terms with feeling like their colleagues haven't seen or acknowledged the problem of racism in the Valley, and also grappling with, you know, one's own decisions, um, one's, you know, complicity in in this system that has prevented other people from entering the tech industry. And, you know, the VC industry is so crucial because they make decisions that have disproportionate impact on what the tech industry looks like um, for, you know, 
in corporate terms, generations to come. And so preventing black entrepreneurs from succeeding then has knock-on effects of the diversity of the companies that are being built and being funded and are successful and so forth. Man, the first-person accounts that you have, um, Nika, from some of the individuals, the black um, venture capitalists, if you will, or those within Silicon Valley, and the stories that they had to tell. Tell us a little bit about that. Share that with our, our, our listeners. You you talk mm-hmm. about um, Sidney Sykes and also Tyson Clark. Um, tell us a little bit about who they are and some of their experiences. Right. Sydney Sykes is a young woman who came out of Harvard, um, had so much potential in her career in venture capital after working at a consulting firm. And she worked at New Enterprise Associates, NEA, which is pretty prominent uh, in Silicon Valley. And when she introduced talented black entrepreneurs to uh, some of her white colleagues, she said she'd feel the chemistry in the room sour. Um, the white entrepreneurs, uh, the white uh, investors, pardon me, always said the same thing afterward that they just couldn't get excited about the idea or the person. She said the same thing happened when there was a referral for a black candidate for a job in VC. Um, and she had to leave the industry um, in the end in 2018 mm-hmm. because of the stress of being the only black person in the room. You know, Tyson Clark is one of the most prominent black uh, VCs in Silicon Valley by dint of working at uh, GV, formerly Google Ventures at Alphabet. Um, and he, you know, said that he just felt so guilty um, about what he had done and what he hadn't done. He said, have I been so complicit um, to have traded success for not making a difference? And really was facing this incredibly poignant uh, personal reckoning about his role in the industry and the ways that he felt he had to contort himself over the course of his career to be acceptable um, in white institutions. Well, and the the quotes in this story are, are really, yeah. I, I'll just say they're jarring in, in many ways. And, and one of the things, and, and and sort of building on what you were just talking about, Nico, is this quote from from Sykes when she says, you feel have to, and I'm quoting here, you feel you have to be a model minority, the best black person. If you mess it up, you ruin it not just for you, but for everyone who looks like you. And so you talked about the contortion the that he talked about, but in this case, she's talking about the pressure on her and a lot of those very, very few people who happen to be black and successful in Silicon Valley. Absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting is that these are all very ambitious people. These are very well-educated people. They are, um, you know, just absolutely brilliant. And yet they feel, uh, in some instances, this imposter syndrome um, about, you know, having to say what they think about a business when they don't feel, um, you know, fully accepted in a room or, you know, they're certainly the only ones there. And that's Nico Grant. He looks after enterprise technology, but so much more for us out in San Francisco, Silicon Valley. It is really in the midst of an existential crisis. It's not about the virus so much anymore. The Northern California area, while it certainly wrestled with that early on, now it's wrestling with something 
even bigger. It's wrestling with really its own soul. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the founder and CEO of Harlem Film talks about supporting independent and marginalized filmmakers in New York City. And just like black entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, black filmmakers are also having trouble finding funding. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Carol, we're going to keep the focus on race this half hour and look at another industry where blacks and minorities are finding it difficult to thrive. This isn't new, but we're bringing more attention to it and maybe just maybe a little bit of optimism. Well, it was a favorite interview, no doubt about it, Jason, for us over the last week. And it was with the founder of the Harlem Film House. They do workshops, film festivals, but they're also about finding the support for independent and marginalized filmmakers in New York City. We caught up with the amazing C.R. Caper. She's the founder and CEO of Harlem Filmhouse. Check it out. I am a huge fan. It is super dope to be here. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. (laughs) I really appreciate you guys, particularly on being on Bloomberg and being on Bloomberg Business and allowing people to understand that, you know, this is a business, even though it is in the arts, it's still a business, and we still need to support marginalized filmmakers with the business of film. So right. Great well, well, thank you so much. It's very nice of you to say, and uh, we're excited about the work you're doing. Tell us about it. Tell us what Harlem Filmhouse is, just like from the ground up. Well, from the ground up, we are a 501c corporation. We produce film and music festivals. We operate year-round workshops, theater productions, and live events, while also offering business consulting to filmmakers and content creators and underserved communities around the world. So what we're really talking about is creating an economic ecosystem by providing filmmakers services and resources to ensure the longevity of their careers in film, theater, and related entrepreneurial pursuits, such as producing, uh, learning what the other jobs are in the industry that actually create economy, jobs, and sustenance for families. I got to say, CR, you know, we have talked to some different folks, uh, Jane Rosenthal of Tribeca and some other, you know, uh, individuals, producers who are writing series for some of the streaming folks. I mean, content has had such a tough time in the pandemic, Mm -hmm. right? Because you just couldn't go around like most of us. You couldn't go about, you know, doing what you do normally. But in particular, content creation, it's a lot of people often in a close space, uh, very Mm -hmm. close to one another. Tell us how the pandemic has impacted you guys and really the community that you serve? Well, for us, because we're often overlooked, you will find that there is more than enough content to service the world for at least three to five years without repeat. And that's the thing. It really draws to attention the people that were overlooked because now you have all this amazing content that's been overlooked for years from these marginalized communities, but who are actually creating and have created the content that drives culture forward, that drives box office numbers and apps and all of these things. If you look at any of the apps and particularly in the business models that create it, they reside on content. And the creators of that content are the young people, are folks who embrace the culture of hip-hop globally. They're the ones creating the content that people are actually wanting to see. 
So then when you take that and you look at it and say, well, what are these people creating beyond these clips? They're actually creating shorts, movies, and things that are in that same vein. So what the pandemic has taught us is, number one, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce the world to uh, content creators from around the world, regardless of color, who embrace this culture and the spirit of entrepreneurism and giving the world something fresh and new. Second, it allows us to really hone in on the fact that while people are getting back to work in productions, that they do need to do it safely. And how do we provide that by offering workshops and classes around the compliance with uh, COVID, letting them understand what, you know, distance means, cleaning equipment, and keeping those sets safe. We combined and created a unique collective called Blackville, where it's not just about Black creatives and you know, creating opportunities, but it's also about keeping smaller production safe. Yeah. We're going to launch an initiative to make sure that we have people on every set, get them COVID compliant so that they can earn money and keep production, small production safe. Because as you know, we're not protected like the big studios. We're overlooked. Right. Um, so it's up to us to make sure that everyone is safe, regardless of color, but according to economic right. income. And mm-hmm. so, CR, you know, one of the things I'm so interested in your background is instead of going to film school, as I understand it, you just like went out and got a camera. You started making films. <laughs> That's how you got into this. So yes. you understand it literally from, as we sort of said at the beginning, from from the ground up. I would imagine this new world order that we're living in actually in some ways plays to the strengths of being sort of small and nimble, right? And you got it right. So you guys have heard of the phrase too big to fail or too small to fail. Right. Which in this <laughs> like economy is, is important. Yeah. So it's like, you know, all the big guys, oh, my God, they're, you know, this big behemoth film festivals, and they're great. Trust me, we work with Sundance, awesome organization. But – you know, it does. It is too. It is too big to operate and too big to be swift and nimble, which is what is needed right now. Can I, can I just can I, about it. can I just say mm-hmm. that is such a really important point? Too small to fail. Jason and I talk about it kind of more broadly, um, CR, and just the importance of saving small businesses. And many of our guests do as well. That it is so important to the economy. It's not just about. The big guys out there, especially getting through this pandemic. So we're going to come back and and talk some more because I think that is um, a really interesting part of this conversation and a really important one, Jason. You know, CR, sometimes the stars just align and other people (laughs) are thinking about the same things we are. And that was the case this week with the New York Times because they have a terrific piece and candidly a troubling one about the Criterion Collection. Anyone who cares about movies knows the Criterion Collection. It's studied in Mm -hmm. film schools. You know, I love the Criterion Collection as someone who loves movies. And yet, its own president coming out and basically saying, we've done a really crummy job with featuring black directors and films made by black people. How do we fix it? Well, number one is for you to give them my direct number (laughs) and we can start that conversation there. Number two... Um, I think sometimes we do get caught up in the word black and metal, and it's about telling everyone's 
story, yeah. not just black or Asian or, or white. We are a plethora of communities and cultures. Like you can say black, but does that also include the West Indian community? Does that also include people with a more southern twang to their culture, but have an excess of melanin in their skin? So we really have to think about not just assigning a color to our human experience, but then also being inclusive of everyone's story. So go ahead and give him my number. We have a lot to talk about. For instance, does he understand the complex uh, uh, social narrative that's embedded in a very old school movie called Hollywood Shuffle that was directed by yeah. Robert Townsend. Does he understand the complexity in a, a old 70s movie called A Five on the Black Hand Side? Movies that aren't typically seen as, you know, important are super important to the culture and have taught people how to live or to be accepting of another human being, whether it be in a humorous way or a funny way, the cultural significance of blazing saddles alone. Why is that not? You know what I'm saying? So yeah, definitely lends to a conversation of who's making a decision and why does only their opinion count. Right. What we keep talking about is that you don't have blacks and minorities represented well in the higher mm-hmm. echelons of pick your industry. Mm-hmm. And as a result, mm-hmm. projects don't get brought along. You don't have a seat at the table that helps to cultivate mm-hmm. filmmakers and give them these opportunities. But but tell me, you're seeing it firsthand. What's going on? Why mm-hmm. aren't we seeing a bigger uh, you know presence of blacks and minorities, especially when it comes to making films? Because no one cares about our voice. It's that simple. Can you imagine what it's like to be locked in a room and constantly screaming and screaming and people just walking by, just completely oblivious to you? That's what it is. I can tell you from personal experience myself how often I have reached out to distributors and said, listen, we're not asking for a handout. We just want equitable opportunity. Why can't we get someone from Netflix to attend our festival? I can't even begin to tell you how frustrating it is, how horrible and how hurtful it is to be on the phone with these people and for them to basically either ghost you or tell you that, you know, basically, oh, we don't think you're important enough. That's Sarah Capers, the founder and CEO of Harlem Filmhouse. And Jason, I got to say, one of the things that stayed with me from our discussion with her, first of all, I loved her energy and what she's trying to do. But she mentioned how these independent, often minority filmmakers are too small to fail. She says, so easy to keep them going with just a little bit of support and how they are necessary voices to have in today's filmmaking industry. Well, and the other thing I took away from it is there are a lot of movies to watch uh, yes. <laughs> that maybe don't get as much attention and uh, looking forward to getting that list from her, that homework assignment, and to check back in down the line with CR Capers. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour, including a special interview in Pursuits. It's with Louis Vuitton's menswear artistic director. He talks about about diversity. He talks about the virus. He talks about the fashion world and what's next, especially when it comes to digital. Plus, it wouldn't be you and me. It wouldn't be Bloomberg Business Week if we (laughs) didn't talk a little bit about fitness. And we don't use this word lightly, icon. Jake Steinfeld, we're talking about Body by Jake. We caught up with him in Los Angeles. He's got some tips for staying healthy in the pandemic. I just want a little bit of his energy. This is Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, it's week 24, as you pointed out at the top of the show, Carol, from working from home. And we get to the end of the week and we sigh a bit every week because our world hasn't changed that much. This week, I have to say, though, felt even heavier. We talked a lot in the last hour about different industries facing structural racism, but this week we were reminded in some ways just how far we have to go. Another black man shot by police in Wisconsin. The protests that ensued not just there in Kenosha, but even into the world of sports. Professional athletes boycotting games, trying to send a message that this will not stand. It really rippled even deeper into society. That's right, Jason. And as you said, a really heavy week. I mean, add on top of that, millions of Americans having to abandon their home as a result of Hurricane Laura. So that devastation. And then let's not forget, I mean, on the political front, we were also wrapping up the Republican National Convention. So safe to say so much going on. And then we constantly are watching what's going on, the latest headlines when it comes to COVID-19 and also how the economy comes back. One of the voices that we looked forward to talking with, and this has to do with the small business world, is Rob Frowine. He's the founder and CEO of Cabbage. So we caught up with him about small business lending. And also he's been pretty busy because he's got a new deal with American Express. It was great to catch up with him because he provided some real insights into what this looks like on the ground, the virus and the economic impact it is having on real people. We also know that it's having an effect on all of our bodies. Candidly, we're Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to cope with this emotionally and physically. We were really excited and I think energized to talk to the man himself, Jake Steinfeld. We're talking about Body by Jake. He invented the fitness business in many ways 40 years ago. He gave us a little dose of optimism. Yeah, some optimism. And he had to pivot. He had to learn about digital from his son. So that was kind of fun to hear. Speaking of pivoting, that's what everyone has had to do during the pandemic. And that includes one of the voices in this week's magazine, In Pursuits, Louis Vuitton's menswear artistic director. We're talking about Virgil Abloh. He's also CEO of the Milan-based label Off-White. He caught up with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Horden. And they talked about many things, the virus's impact on fashion, transition to digital, and also diversity. A lot of it is how I approach my advocacy. You know, I, I, I found that, you know, be, me being one of the few black designers at the head of a Parisian fashion house gives me a unique opportunity to sort of lead in that space. You know, I've started my postmodern scholarship fund, which works at the education level to make sure that there's inroads kept for young black designers to work in the fashion space, all the way to my show in Shanghai was largely created by an all-black creative team just to showcase the state of the art and how diversity and inclusivity can lead to great results. Your website also talks about how your advocacy looks different. What does that actually look like? Walk us through that. Yeah, indeed. You know, part of my advocacy is, is fundraising, you know, putting dollars where it matters to sort of make sure students are entering the road to having a career in design, fashion, creativity. But that's not all that it encompasses. You know, a lot of that is leading by example. Um, You know, I'm the head of a house, so how I build my collections, how I represent black uh, culture, how I represent black DNA is important, you know. And then as well, you know, I'm supremely focused on mentorship. 
You know, I think that there's this, this is critical point in everyone's career in order to sort of receive the right advice, to sort of work in the right position. And all those sort of different spheres are important to how I approach my advocacy. Talking about looking internally, especially big, big corporations are thinking, or, you know, we ask them on Bloomberg Television, you know, is it time to start implementing metrics? Do you think a system like metrics would work for diversity? For this system to change, to eradicate systemic racism, all tools need to be used. You know, I think that we want to see this at the, the grassroots level all the way to the level that the consumer can feel it, to show that we're committed to it. So for me, on my hand, I advocate all tools to sort of root out as systemic racism. Has your leadership changed? I think my leadership has changed. You know, uh, I would agree with that statement of uh, me being the, one of the foremost figures in design as well as being a black male. There's a unique opportunity for me to seize, to, to be a leading voice, to sort of lead by example. My postmodern scholarship fund was announced as my wide sweeping effort um, to tackle that and to also roll up my sleeves and showcase the work that I've believed in since I started. Um, so, you know, I welcome the challenge and I'm taking it to heart. Virgil, you've collaborated with, I mean, the list is Pretty just long. ongoing. Yeah, Nike, Evian, Ikea. Then you have the personalities, Kanye West, Serena Williams. You've showed at art institutes in Chicago, in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. You DJ. I don't know when you find the time for it, <laughs> but you also DJ. With a resume like that, what is next for Virgil Abloh? You know, you know what's next for me is eradicating systemic racism and showing how like inclusivity and a positive mind can be the forefront of creative business. You know, I think if I look at a bird's eye view of my career, I started from humble beginnings. You know, I started an um, architecture that wasn't so adjacent to fashion. And by hard work, uh, a lot of traveling, a lot of persistence, mm -hmm. I've been able to achieve great things. But for me, it's not about achieving great things for myself. It's opening doors for those just like me behind me and making sure that they can follow my path. That's in this week's Pursuit, so check it out. Louis Vuitton's menswear artistic director, Virgil Abloh, catching up with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Horton. You know, it's a business that's learned to pivot. So many businesses having to figure out how to operate, Jason, in this environment. Or to just survive. And that's yeah. going to be the subject of our next conversation coming up with the CEO of Cabbage. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. The online small business lender Cabbage, Jason, we know they have been so busy. They shared with us that they processed some $7 billion in Paycheck Protection Program or PPP loans. They provided support as a result to about 300,000 small businesses. And they've done a deal with American Express. So we had to catch up with someone who is a friend of the show. We're talking about the CEO and founder of Cabbage, Rob Froine. And, you know, he gave us a real detailed picture of what he calls the real lifeblood of the U.S. economy. We're talking about small business. As for that Amex deal, well, he couldn't say too much, but check it out. We're obviously in a, in a phase where we're between sign and close. So right. there's not a lot I can talk about right now other than, uh, obviously, uh, we have executed the relationship and, and working towards close, which we expect to be uh, later on this year. 
that's huge and a, and a real tribute to I know the hard work you and the team have been doing and and truly how deeply you have integrated yourself into the small business world. So let's talk about that because when you were last here, I think it was back in March, this was sort of all getting underway and this relief was starting to come through and we didn't know exactly how it was going to work and you helped walk us through that. What have you learned? What's the biggest thing we need to understand about PPP uh, and how it all played out? I think the, uh, it, wow, what a big question. Yeah. Uh, it was, without a doubt, the craziest period of my life and my, my colleagues' lives. Um, there was information that was coming in uh, nonstop, rules changing, uh, quite, you know, application changing constantly. You just had to really be prepared for uh, anything. Uh, and you also, it was a great lesson in business for me. Uh, none of us have a playbook uh, for, for the crisis but a great lesson uh, that you have to really work um, multiple uh, options on every path of your business in order to make sure you're prepared for, for something uh, this enormous. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, well, that's interesting. I got it. There's a couple different places I want to go. First, I want to ask you, though, sure. then, Rob, because of your experience, exposure and role in the PPP program, do you think it worked? So I, you know, I, I think what it what it did was it 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 helped it has helped businesses get through a period of time. But uh, you know, it's one of those situations where we can't stop there. You know, this is something that would help small businesses get over a really challenging period. Now they have to rebuild and then they have to grow. So I feel like we're a third of the way there in mm. terms of helping small businesses, and we can't stop now. Or else we, you know, in my opinion, we lose all the benefit of everything that we've worked so hard to do, mm. uh, which is help these businesses get through this period. We have to, we have to figure out how to help them get through the next period of time. So more money is what you're saying from the government? Yeah, I think it's more. Yeah, more. I, I think more aid, without a doubt, uh, needs needs to happen. Uh, there are a lot of businesses that you know have suffered uh, very significantly. We're going to have to look at other ways to, to help them sort of manage their expenses on a go-forward basis and allow them to, to rebuild. We all still need the services of all these small businesses, yeah. and allowing millions of these businesses to go out of business is not the answer. It's just not the answer. So, Rob, what did you learn about the process in terms of how something like this can and should be executed in terms of just the sheer process, I guess, uh, and the logistics of sort of getting the money from the government to the businesses, you were right in the middle of that. What did we learn about staying positive? Like what works in terms of how to fill out forms or what sorts of information or what what were the things that you picked up along the way? Well, one thing I, I sort of came to realize that if this uh, pandemic had happened 15 years ago, uh, first of all, we wouldn't have Zoom. Uh, and the and the ability to do the the kinds of conferencing we did, so that that was not lost on me. But also, a company like Cabbage would not have been around to serve sure. a very long tail of small business. So, whatever we can do to further automate the process, remember, there's been maybe four and a half or five million businesses served. There are actually thirty million small businesses in the U.S. And even if you take out some of the extraneous, you know, LLCs and and other businesses that don't have any employees, um, you're still talking about well over 10 million small businesses. So what's happening with them? You know, so figuring out a process where you can, you know, allow um, companies like Cabbage to serve large 
numbers of small businesses is really important. Getting access to government data, allowing, you know, tax information, you know, more access to data, um, easier and, and quicker ways for small businesses to fill out forms, keeping things really simple. Again, a lot of these small business owners are doing what they're doing because they're amazing at that craft or skill or trade. They're not accountants. They're not sophisticated financial experts. So trying to figure out how to make it easier for them to be able to get through the process is really hypercritical. So Rob, I just want to go back to, you know, I said before the break about what your average loan is, at least the PPP loan was about 23, a little bit over 23. And then the average, I guess 50% of all loans were under 13,000. I mean, when we talk about small business owners, they're really small business. They don't necessarily need a ton of money to survive, but a little money goes a long way to keeping their business alive. Yeah, for sure. And look, you know, you know, I, I think a lot of people look at that and think of these as, you know, small loans or micro loans. But for a lot of these people, these are these are important loans represent a month or two months of income uh, or, or wages that they're paying um, others, um, hypercritical funds. And I think a lot of times everybody wants to think uh, of the definition that, you know, the IRS or a large bank might used for a small business, which is, hey, any business generating only between 10 and $50 million. The real lifeblood of our, communi- of, of our economy are these really small businesses that are coming in and fixing things in your home, you know, running the local retail store, the local dry cleaner. These are the real heroes of our economy and, and, are really, and really fuel a lot of the jobs in the economy. Are people able to hang on? Are they starting to see any sort of return to normal? We get so much political rhetoric uh, around this, especially around small businesses. And I know it varies from place to place where you are in the country, but even where you are, what what's the sense that you get of how small businesses are doing overall? Yeah, I would say overall, you know, it's, there's there's kind of a feast or famine mentality out mm-hmm. there right now. Some businesses are doing as well or even a little bit better than they were doing before, depending on the, the you know on the area of business they focus on. And some are still devastated, uh, and those businesses will never. Uh, recover. And that's Rob Froine, the founder and CEO of Cabbage. Great to have him back with us. A real check-in in terms of where small businesses are. We, I think, Carol, mm. understood sort of intellectually how important small businesses were before the pandemic. During the pandemic, it's become much more visceral in a lot of ways. And so to hear the numbers from him, the stories of how small businesses have coped or not through all of this was really an eye-opener. Coming up, we've got a small business owner. She's just launched a platform for female athletes. We'll catch up with her. And then someone who's been around for 40 years. It's a name you know when it comes to the world of fitness. An icon, to say the least. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. This half hour, Jason, we've got two interviews, two perspectives in the sports and fitness space. One who is out to empower women and female athletes. The other started empowering others decades ago to take control of their physical well-being. He's an undisputed legend in the fitness world, both entrepreneurs. But first up, let's talk about the newbie. Absolutely. Steph Strack is her name. She was the CEO of Rag and Bone. That's a familiar name mm-hmm. in your closet. Now she's the founder and CEO of Voice in Sport. They call it Viz. They just launched. It's a platform for young female athletes. Check it out. Voice in Sport um, or Viz, as we like to call it in our community, um, 
first and foremost, we are a community. And at the heart of our community is the voice of female athletes. That's at the center of everything we do. So we're really bringing this new platform to life. We call it a sports advocacy platform. And our goal is to provide girls with access to content, mentorship, and ultimately advocacy tools. So why now? Well, you know, it's I've been an athlete my whole life, and I, I went grew up here in Alaska, and then also into Division One soccer. And during my journey in sport, I had so many challenges. And I think now having a daughter who's seven years old and 14 years of experience in the sports industry at Nike, I felt like not enough has changed. And for this next generation that's coming up behind us, I think they deserve something better. So. Ultimately, um, about a year ago, I decided to, to break off from kind of the corporate world and start Viz. And I think now more than ever, especially with what's happening around the world, these girls in sport really do need a community um, to keep inspired and to support each other in their journey. You, and the word community stuff is something that so resonates with me in terms of what you're doing, right? It's not just about, okay, here's a place where you can go for information, but Jason and I both like working with the younger generation and right, helping other journalists, you know, younger journalists come along. And I feel like that's what you are reaching out to do, especially when I think when you're young and you're, beca- you know, building up your sport or, you know, whatever, there's a lot of different forces kind of pulling on you. And so it sounds like you're creating that community to kind of, here's how you do it. Here's what you need to watch out for. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think we all know that one of the biggest reasons why girls fall out of sport is just lack of support or lack Mm -hmm. of visibility to each other or lack of visibility to resources. So I know certainly growing up in Alaska and not having access to some of, you know, the pros and some of the content or coaches or, you know, even nutritionists that, I really could have used um, a community to help me in my journey. And so ultimately, I think it's going to be one of the biggest missing pieces in the sports industry right now is that community at the center of, of a new company that ultimately has you know, the best interest of these young girls at heart. Well, and the timing is so interesting too, Steph, just given the the focus in a very positive way that it feels like over the last couple of years has come to female athletes, especially young female athletes, a lot of new role models uh, in a great way. What has happened that has sort of brought that to the fore? It, it feels like it was something that was waiting to happen and now hopefully, and maybe I'm being overly optimistic, is happening in a bigger way here in 2020. Yeah, I know. I think it's interesting. There was like this really strong movement that I felt happening right after the Women's World Cup mm-hmm. um, when the U.S. won. And I think that right at that moment, I started to feel like, wow, there's this moment. And And really, I think these girls really propelled that and started to accelerate that for all of us across the world. And at that moment, that's actually when I decided to leave my my job at Rag and Bone and start this company. But the the interesting thing is, is when when you really dig into it, um, what is missing is community. And I think that products and materialistic things are, are important and they bring joy. But when you go through a pandemic and you go through, you know, kind of what we're all going through together you start realizing that those connections to each other is what really matters. And so I'm, you know, I'm so proud of building this with all of these young female athletes because you see the power of how those connections can create, you know, long-term effects for these girls. You talked a little bit to us about sort of the community that you're building, but part of the community that's so interesting to me is this group that you've brought together across all sorts of sports, both collegiate and um, Olympic sports, to kind of create the 
community. We're talking about Mary Kane, a uh, well-known runner. We're talking about Alina Smith. And like so many people, uh, tell us who who you've been talking to and what they've been contributing. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm I'm so proud to have built this this platform with all these amazing female athletes. It's been like like sports, a true like team effort. So we have sort of these three key roles within our community that we're launching with. And one of them is called the Viz League. And that's a group of 90 professional and collegiate athletes, some of which are Olympic athletes, also from Alaska. Keegan Randall is part of this group. Nice. Um, Have to give a shout out to her. Um, But those those 90 pro and collegiate athletes are female athletes that are dedicated to mentor the younger generation. And that's Steph Strack of Viz. They're building an independent community-based platform. It's for female athletes. We're talking about young folks age 12 to 22. And I love it, Jason, because it's content. It's mentoring, it's advocacy, it's really giving female athletes a way to elevate their voice. So cool. Absolutely. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. When you think about entrepreneurs in the fitness and athletic world like Steph Streck, they might be taking some inspiration from our next guest. We're talking about Jake Steinfeld, Body by Jake. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, what I love about our show is you never really know who might show up. But one thing you can count on, and that is that we are going to be talking about fitness, including with someone who is an undisputed legend in the fitness world. You know him as Body by Jake. We're talking about Jake Steinfeld, and man, a dose of positivity. We need it to wrap up this week's show. We caught up with him in L.A., and we set some ground rules. We were going to be positive. And it has been very challenging for, for all Americans, right? I mean, you know, uh, since the pandemic hit in March, uh, people have been locked in, locked down. You know, you look at businesses and people and families, uh, I have my wife, and we have four kids uh, spread around the country and around the world, and it's, it has been very challenging. But interestingly enough, when this pandemic hit, guys, um, I got phone calls immediately from, from folks like yourselves and CNN and Fox and ESPN saying, Jake, people are locked in their homes. Uh, gyms are closed. They're putting on weight. Stress levels are high. You were the guy that created personal fitness training and made it an occupation, and it's what I did. You know, I went to uh, people like Steven Spielberg and Harrison Ford's homes with a broomstick, a towel, and a chair, and sort of created a 30-minute workout uh, that you could do in your home. And it's really interesting, guys, when you're able to just get a little creative, you know, when you're locked up, whether it's an apartment or a condo or your house, you you need to take a few minutes, just a few minutes. You stand up and get your blood flowing, whether it's two cans of Mama's tomato paste or a broomstick that you could do some stretching, some squats, some lunges, and just believe you start to, you know, I'm a big believer in positive thinking. I was given a poem when I was cut from my eighth grade basketball team, true story, hmm. uh, called Don't Quit. Mm. And uh, the last two lines of the poem are, stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things seem worst that you must not quit. And it's, it's a matter of changing those negative thoughts of I can't to I can. So if you're, obviously if you're driving right now, you can squeeze your hands on the steering wheel and do some isometrics. But if you're listening at home, you know, all you have to be doing, guys, is, and, and you can be doing it right now in the studio, Jason and Carol, um, some isometric exercises that we have at Official Body by Jake. Uh, I, 
I'm a, I've been anti-social media for a very <laughs> long time. Kind of silly. Yes, it's been silly, you know, but my two young sons were home from school, and they got me engaged with it, and we started posting up uh, little 60-second vignettes, um, kind of like I did with Ted Turner. Yeah. Gave me my start doing the fitness break on Cable News Network back in 1981. Uh, and uh, just simple exercises that you can do. Look, exercise is very boring. If you admit, we all admit it, right? If, if it was easy, everybody would be in great shape. Uh, but what you need to do is find something that works for you, that you can incorporate into your lifestyle. And now more than ever, especially because, look, I've talked to so many gym owners, so many fitness studio owners who are working diligently to keep their places clean so they can open them. But people, listen, over the age of 50 years old, I'm 62 now. Um, you know, you, you need to be cautious. Yeah. You need to be safe. Right. So, Jake, tell us about this partnership with Keurig Dr. Pepper and the new nutrition shake that you guys have created called Don't Quit. Yes, yes, indeed. I, I, I will say this. The folks at Keurig Dr. Pepper, the CEO, Bob Gamcourt, is, you know, I'm sure you guys talk to lots and lots of business people. Um, I've been very blessed in my career to, to, to deal with CEOs, whether it's Fortune 50, 500, entrepreneurs at all levels. Bob Gamcourt is one of those kind of entrepreneurs at, at, the, at the corporate level that you don't rarely find. Um, we got together. Uh, we saw an opportunity in the adult nutrition section. Uh, where there are a couple of brands there right now, and I've got to tell you, they're they're not very good for you, very honestly, guys. There's a lot of chemicals, and we wanted to create something that had a clean label. That we have 26 vitamins and minerals, no soy, no corn, no wheat, no added added additives, uh, gluten free. It's kosher. Oh wait a second, it tastes delicious. I've been a protein drink guy since I'm 13 years old. I was an overweight kid, had a bad stutter growing up. My dad bought me a set of weights when I was 13, and it changed my life. And I, I'm, a, I'm a connoisseur on protein shakes. And I finally had an opportunity to work with a gentleman like Bob Gamcourt and the folks at L.A. Libations in California here. We've come up with – this is one of those things where the world is not looking for another nutrition shake. It just needs the best one. And we have it. And we want everyone to try it. Check it out at don'tquit.com. It's just don'tquit.com. There are four original flavors, chocolate, vanilla, chai tea, and orange-sickle, like cream-sickle, which my favorite of all time. Yeah. Uh, and we have two max versions where there are 30 grams of protein and one gram of sugar, chocolate and vanilla. Online right now, we've already sold out. We, we launched last week. You want to talk about how passionate people are, especially 50-plus, where especially now more than ever, Carol yeah. and Jason, where we're desperate for hope and our health. Yeah. And we want to make sure that what we're doing and putting in our bodies is really good for us. So you know, when you're exercising and nutrition, they go hand in hand. Right. Well, and it feels like, Jake, that – I know it's not a revelation to you, but to more and more people, it feels like one of the things that folks have discovered when they are cooking at home or spending more time at home, they are a little bit more focused on 
their bodies and what they're putting into it and yes. seeing those things. I mean, I would add in the idea, and Carol and I have talked a lot about this on this show, that she and I hmm. notice uh, that because we're not commuting, we're getting more sleep. And, you know, it all <sighs> is sort of like this this machine that we all have that is our bodies uh, does respond uh, differently when you treat it well. And I love that you're taking, I talk about the upward spiral of success and looking at the positives as opposed to the challenges. And I was never a big supplement taker, never a big vitamin taker. And I wanted to make sure, A, because it's expensive, and B, because the more you take in, the more you, you know, when you go to the bathroom, you get rid of a lot of those vitamins. Right. Right. And here's an opportunity where I want to make sure that you are healthy. That 26, and, and especially you open the fridge in the morning and you see the words, don't quit. What is that? I mean, you want, you want to talk about positive. And midday, this is meant as a meal supplement, but people are already using it as a meal replacement. A lot of great recipes. Uh, someone just sent in something to do vanilla, don't quit pancakes. Unbelievable. Yeah. And it's that's all, actually brilliant. I like that. That's a great. You could like cook with it, bake with yes. it. Yes, and, yeah. and and we've and we've it's had. Great idea. I love the orangeicle with a banana, a couple of dates, some ice. We call it a don't quit freeze. There, if you you know, I have a bad sweet tooth. You know, I I, I mm -hmm. eat so I I train so I can eat. I yeah. tell people, we if you if we go to dinner sometime, I like to eat like we're going to the electric chair. That's <laughs> what I say because you know you want to live your life. And as I said, what's super important is how you are mentally, right? A lot of people right now especially are struggling, and it's all about taking that first step, that first moment of just moving your body and doing something positive for yourself. And there are lots and lots of people, millions of folks who listen to you guys every day, and this is an unbelievable opportunity for me to spend some time with you all, but especially people in the tri-state areas where I grew up to do something positive, yeah. and at this moment in time especially, don't quit. Don't quit on you, on your families, on who you are and how you're going to be. Because as I said, right, stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things seem worse that you must not quit. Listen, this is so important, and this is why, you know, Jason and I do talk to a lot of folks in the fitness industry because I think, you know, we've seen in this virus, Jake, you know, that for those who are unhealthy, this virus has hurt them that much more. And yes. I do think about how we can make fitness much more available to more people, make it accessible, make it cheaper. And Carol, and you, you just said it, and, and, it, and it is. And listen, it's important to, you know, people love, I, I loved going to a gym. It's great to see friends and people, but you have to make good decisions. And like I said in the earlier uh, uh, segment that we had, spoke to lots of gym owners who are doing great things to keep their places clean and open and i'm so proud of everybody in jersey and new york yeah they're gonna open again it's it doing it in a smart way that's the way we'll do it nice and slow nice and smooth but especially folks over the age of 50 years old who are being smart you got to be careful right go out there live your life but do it in a positive way and nutrition, being healthy. That, you know, I, I would never want to say that don't quit is a vaccine, but did I just say don't quit is a vaccine? <laughs> and that's Jake Steinfeld. You know him better as Body by Jake. Catching up with him, I have to say, it just sort of set me in a new direction, made me think about what I do, what I eat, but oh in a very God. positive way, Carol. 
And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio, our daily show, live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And catch everything we do via podcast every day, but also special editions like our Business Week Extra. Right. It's a really cool conversation, Jason. It's with Peter Atwater. He's a listener of the show. He's also an adjunct lecturer in the economics department at William & Mary. And as we all try to figure out what kind of economic recovery we are having, we've all seen different letters to describe it. He has talked about a K-shaped recovery. And the whole point of this is that for some, the pandemic really hasn't impacted them that much. For others, as we know, it's been really tough times. Love this conversation. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. Stay safe, everyone. This is Bloomberg.